But first to a very modern frontier of the Ukraine war. The fighting itself has certainly had plenty of coverage since war broke out last February. And while we here at Saturday Extra, among others, have made real efforts to cover all the various important angles and uh, events, there's one aspect we've overlooked till now, the cyber war that's being fought as well between Russia and Ukraine. Now, this conflict is now widely considered by experts to be the first cyber war, and there's a lot to learn, as it certainly won't be the last. Robert Potter is the co-founder and co-CEO of an Australian cybersecurity company, Internet 2.0, and he's been involved in assisting the Ukrainian cyber efforts since the war's start, notably doing so from inside Ukraine. We just had to find out why. Robert, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Why did you decide to swap your Sydney offices for Ukraine, an active war zone? Well, a lot of it has to do with what's actually connected and how best to get to it when it's under cyber attack. So if you think of cyber, we often think of laptops and large distances. But when bad guys are actually in networks, it doesn't always help for you to be as far away as the hacker and you get more control over the system when you're close up. It also helps build a lot of trust, particularly when you're working with Ukrainians who are living through a combined cyber uh, and kinetic war. Well, that's the interesting mix that you talk about. Um, And you've obviously become quite used to talking about that it's really a cyber war with a kinetic kinetic overview, as it were. Now, what's that really mean? So it means that uh, at the beginning of the war, we had this assumption that cyber could be used as a decisive weapon of war. It turns out that people's uh, alarms on that were probably a bit early, although that doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. But there certainly were a large amount of cyber attacks by the Russians at the beginning to disrupt uh, and degrade Ukraine's uh, communications and power infrastructure. It wasn't decisive and it was probably about as well organised as the initial drive on Kyiv. Uh, but uh, since that time, the cyber war has changed quite a bit. Now we face a reality where Russia uses cyber not just as a as a tool in and of itself, but as a targeting platform uh, at, to target some of its more kinetic operations. So we're seeing the two blend together. How? I'll give you a great example. So one of the things we've had to work with uh, Ukraine on has been keeping the power systems running. So what the Russians can't knock out uh, with cyber attacks, they've tried missile attacks on. But then there's also been a, a kind of a blend of those two things together with trying to figure out which power plants in Ukraine are the most active. So a lot of that means checking the amount of uh, connectivity that the power plant has to the internet, what exactly is going on, whether or not they're updating their systems, you know, looking for these signs that a particular plant might be more important than another one. And then using that as a way to target their missile strikes because they don't have an infinite number of missiles. They have to use them to the best that they can. So using cyber as a means of reconnaissance and as an initial part of their attacks to try and knock the plants offline uh, is something that's kind of emerged in the last 12 months of the war. Right. And if you're fully engaged, so if you have these different power uh, hubs fully engaged, obviously, I think 
you're suggesting they become a bit more resilient. If they're just sort of wafting along without um, double checking, that they might be more ripe for the taking out. But I've also uh, been informed that Ukraine's rather aged Soviet-era infrastructure has sometimes proven to be a blessing in this context, as some of these very old systems can be manually reset and back online in a couple of hours if they're knocked out. And that that's not necessarily the case with more more modern systems. So that's quite counterintuitive. But am I getting it right? You are. But there's also the fact that Ukraine, prior to the war, because of its power systems, was an energy exporter. So it always had more than it needed. So when the attacks started, they had this reserve capacity of power generation uh, that has meant that it was going to always take a lot more to knock them offline because they didn't just have power generation for their own needs. It wasn't calibrated, you know, for 100% or, you know, a hot summer's day. They were making a large amount of money transporting energy uh, to other countries. So what we've also seen now that the Russian campaign to knock off Ukraine's energy systems has been a massive, spectacular failure, as Ukraine, even with the missile strikes, has now become a net energy exporter again. Incredible. So they're they're very adaptive, are they? Is this it? Yeah, that's right. So Ukrainians are very pragmatic uh, and very adaptive. Their systems are old, but the Soviet Union made terrible apartments and terrible cars, but they made good power plants and good bridges. So those two things are very resilient because a lot of that sort of stuff was designed to stand up for during a war against NATO. Uh, It's now standing up (laughs) to a war from uh, the Russian side. So am I correct that your company, Internet 2.0, now has an office in Kyiv as well as a, an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding with the Ministry of Digital Transformation? So are you really embedding yourself there? That's right. So we have a number of MOUs. Ministry of Digital Transformation is the first one that we signed. We also have one with the Ukrainian Ministry of Defence and with the Na- uh, National Security Defence Committee, uh, which is their peak decision-making body for defence and cyber security. Uh, we've signed multiple agreements uh, with the Ukrainian government to focus on a number of areas. One is in training. Uh, there just is not, like everywhere in the world, there are not enough people who can do cyber. So we've been providing a lot of cyber training. And the second is technology support, where we've been bringing in, you know, our technology and other companies from Australia's technology uh, into the fight so that they can put their technologies to work on the field, helping them in real time to protect their networks. Surely you're not the only ones there. I mean, uh, uh, have you got big competitors from some of the other uh, typical places? Definitely. Uh, the, the biggest supporter uh, has always been and will probably always be Microsoft. They've done a huge amount of work with the Ukrainian government to make their systems more resilient, including taking large chunks of Ukraine's government data and putting it in other countries. So it's much harder to strike at. Then there are intelligence support companies, the biggest uh, other company that's physically in Ukraine because there aren't that many who are in-country. But you are. You've got an office there, aren't you? Haven't you? Yeah, yeah. The other people who are in-country is Palantir, who are doing a, a very large amount of intelligence support to the Ukrainian government. Did you have prior links with Ukrainian cyber people or organisations before the war? No, uh, and we, it wasn't an area that I'd, I'd worked in. I was more of a specialist in uh, China and North Korea-based hackers. So it was kind of a, a very quick set of lessons to get good at uh, taking on the Russians. Uh, but I was at, it was a very 
weird situation where uh, I was actually – David, my co-founder, and I were invited to the White House uh, last year to be part of President Biden's counter-ransomware initiative. We're the only company that got an invite from Australia. And when we were there, we met uh, some of the heads of the Ukrainian agencies. We went through some of the problems that they were having, and David and I were like, well, let's really help these people. And so we decided to commit – you know, it wasn't a huge amount of capital, but some capital – into Ukraine as part of our, you know, what we consider a kind of a requirement to give back into the community. Uh, and so we decided we would open an office in Ukraine. So it's not a profit-generating section of our company. As you do. Uh, <laughs> but we also hired a bunch of... with that. Uh, you hired a really, bunch of really Ukrainians, good. did you say? Yeah, they're, they're really good engineers. So. I mean, were they wary of you at all? Uh, I think th- there's always, like, when you first go in there, uh, there's a lot of people who say they're going to go visit Ukraine or do the three-day trip to Kiev. So when you go there the first time, they're very glad you're there uh, in general. But then it's when you say you're coming back and then you come back that you establish your trust. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of respected for going. We were respected for what we did originally. But it was when we made repeated trips back and when we started, you know, we set some specific metrics for what we wanted to achieve. We said we wanted to train 500 people within the first six months of arriving, and we hit that goal uh, about five months in. And so we were, because we were doing what we said we'd do, we, we ended up getting a lot of trust. And I think actually you're in London right now at um, the sort of Ukraine Reconstruction Conference, which has been convened there, another one of them. I think there's a couple. So you're really, yeah, you're investing in in this, by the sound of it, in the medium to longer term. Yeah, that's right. I think, to be honest, if you're a cybersecurity company and you say your technology works, then Ukraine is where you need to prove it. And I think the market will look at, you know, from from just a pure pragmatism point of view, they're going to look at companies that didn't, you know, where they weren't willing to put their technology on the field, uh, even if they didn't go to Ukraine, you know, even if you don't travel in. If you're not actually putting your tech into a situation where the real bad guys are going to have a crack at it uh, and you can see whether or not it's going to hold up, if you're not doing that, you're, I think after this conflict is over, people are going to be asking a question as to why they should trust that technology over the one that the Ukrainians use. Are the Russians getting better? Yes and no. Uh, Their army always gets better the longer the war goes on. Uh, It's just that thing about Russian armies. But their cyber forces have... They they haven't figured out how best to integrate those cyber forces with their military campaign. It's still very much a damage the Ukrainian economy approach at the moment where they're attacking uh, Ukrainian businesses, Ukrainian critical infrastructure with a view to just doing as much damage as they can. Mm. But it's not as aligned with the, with the physical war campaign uh, as one would expect a really uh, organised adversary would be able to produce. But they have obviously integrated some of those capabilities with their missile strikes. Very interesting um, in terms of developments. I want to quote you finally. Uh, a woman called Nicole Perlroth, she spoke at the Council on Foreign Relations recently and she said this, Ukraine's become the petri dish for what a true Western collaboration between public-private sector cyber defence can look like and we will be much better off if we take these lessons close to heart and we apply them to the next conflict. Now, I presume you agree with that. What could you distill what you've learned so far that you believe will be important in future cyber warfare? 
Well, it's absolutely that assuming that someone who's good at ransomware and espionage-based cyber attacks, like the Russians are very good at those two things. They're good at stealing your stuff uh, and locking it up. And, you know, they've had some very strong success in breaching very sensitive systems on limited scale. Our assumptions about how well those hackers would do in a cyber war were wrong. All right, at the beginning of the war, everyone expected these guys to be ninjas smashing through everyone's systems and doing tremendously large amounts of damage. Now, that obviously didn't happen. Uh, so we've got to ask why. And it's a combination of things. One is the, the, organ, the groups who were doing the hacking were never trained for war. They're not Being good at crime and espionage is not the same thing. And the weapons they use don't have the effects that they're, that they're trying to that they're trying to have on networks. So, using, for example, ransomware on a power plant will lock up their email systems, but any reasonably well-designed system isn't going to crash just because part of it has been compromised. So, a lot of the weapons that people thought would be effective in a cyber war have not been. But that's not something that we should bank and count on being the case forever. Uh, I'd, I'd be expecting that bad guys were learning from that. Uh, as well as other countries. It's not video games or games, cyber games. Very interesting. Um, Robert, good luck to you and thank you very much indeed for uh, letting us into this fascinating new set of developments. No problem. Thanks for having me. Robert Potter, co-CEO of Internet 2.0. Well, up next, Generation Left, how younger people are sticking with progressive politics. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.